Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, if the Parthian Empire is known at all, it's by students of Roman history who see it pop up from time to time before once again disappearing. Marcus Licinius Crassus, a member of the first triumvirate, consisting of himself, Pompey, and Julius Caesar, died in battle at Carrhae against the Parthians. At the moment of his assassination, Caesar himself was preparing for a campaign against Parthia, and Mark Anthony of the second triumvirate was defeated by the Parthians when he attempted to realize Caesar's dream. The Emperor Trajan, some 150 years later, finally achieved victories against Parthia, making his way as far as the shore of the Persian Gulf. But who are the Parthians on their own terms, not just as antagonists of the Romans? Where did they come from? How did they come to power? What was the extent of their empire? And how were they integrated with the world around them, apart from their seemingly near-continuous warfare with the ever-growing Roman Empire? With me to answer these questions is Nicholas Overtum, Assistant Professor of History at Washington State University and author of Reign of Arrows, the Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East. Nicholas Overtum, welcome to Historically Thinking. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, I got this bug in my head about nomads, uh, which is a purely, I have to say, from doing the podcast, nomads keep popping up and they keep seeming to be important. And then earlier this year, I talked with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. That was in episode 264 about the rise of the Achaemenid, Achaemenid Persians. Um, and it seemed to me that'd be fun uh, to trace an empire or a civilization for the first time on the podcast from the sort of its co- its its coalescence to its sort of overthrow. Uh, so roughly from the rise of the Achaemenids to the Islamic invasions of the what, eighth century of seven hundreds. So, uh, Nicholas, uh, you're taking us through the next stage of the story, and it's extremely confusing, especially for someone who's like an American historian. So, what's the period that you're discussing? What is the when did the Parthian Empire rise, and where do you take the story by the end of your book? Yes, yeah. So you're not alone. Um, trust me, my <laughs> my students also feel this sometimes. Lots of foreign names, places, and events. Um, which is one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book um, is tried to, to bring some light to these otherwise, um, you know, sort of far off and hard to understand things and places. But uh, the focus of the book is the Hellenistic era. Uh, Hellenistic era traditionally is from the death of Alexander the Great to the death of Cleopatra of Egypt. So roughly about 323 to 30 BCE. Um, my book really kind of starts roughly with the death of Alexander, which I touch upon uh, and ends at the beginning of the first century BCE, right before the Parthians and the Romans start interacting. Um, but I chose this period to focus on because um, there's a lot of movings and, and shakings going on, especially across the Middle Eastern world. Um, the Middle Eastern world is drastically changing sort of geopolitically and culturally in this period. Uh, you have a lot of conflict, and the Mediterranean always gets the attention, um, which you know you would imagine with with how many scholars focus on on the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, but I wanted to demonstrate the the vibrancy of what's going on in in the Middle East at the same time in the Hellenistic period. So you refer in the book title to the Hellenistic Middle East, 
which seems almost oxymoronic, perhaps, right. to a modern person thinking about the Middle East. So how is the Middle East, uh, following Alexander's conquests, how does the Middle East become Hellenistic? Uh, what is the Middle East at, at, by the time of Alexander's death? Yeah, yeah. So, so Hellenistic is is an invention of modern scholars. It's it's essentially how I always describe it as kind of uh, it means Greekish or Greek like. So it's the Greekish age or the Greek like age, um, and it's really a reflection of the fact that in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests, uh, the Middle East becomes uh, imperially dominated by Greeks and Macedonians. And um, after Alexander dies, the uh, the Seleucid Empire emerges, and Seleucid Empire basically from Anatolia and Syria all the way out to the Hindu Kush uh, dominates this territorial landscape and, and does so very well for several generations. And it's in this kind of melting pot, if you will, uh, acculturation, cultural blending, where you have essentially kind of this top-down cultural impact by the Greeks and Macedonians uh, on indigenous populations across this vast space. Uh, but you also have, from a sort of a bottom-up, um, also a sort of an interaction and an influence culturally. And you get this nice kind of um, blending that's going on between between both imperialist and, and subject in this period. Uh, and the Parthians become a a part of this story because they are migrants who are going to migrate into the Seleucid Empire and then eventually from the inside out start expanding uh, on their own against the Seleucid Empire. So let's talk about the Seleucids uh, since they are the the sort of Macedonian successors to the Achaemenids, um, but in a, in a way that's made perhaps hard for us to understand if I've got the story right. Uh, Alexander comes, decapitates the Persian Empire, but the body remains, uh, but with a different head. Is that sort of the the idea? Is that is that is that the traditional idea? And is that accurate enough? Yeah, in general, Alexander's policy of imperialism is expediency. Um, whatever will help him get to the next place to conquer more stuff, he's happy to sort of accept and move on. We see this over and over again in places like Syria, the Levant. Egypt is a great example of this. And then also the Achaemenid Empire, sort of the traditional homeland of Persia, same thing. Um, you know, he portrays himself as the traditional king of kings, uh, you know, the successor of the Achaemenids, the legitimate successor of the Achaemenids. He kind of, you know, tries to win over the hearts and minds of his person subjects through ceremony, through, you know, sort of dressing uh, more familiarly in, in a sort of Eastern sense. Now, of course, his, his Greek and Macedonian soldiers hate this. Um, oh. they, they call it medizing. He's wearing um, trousers for crying out loud. Right, right. So uh, it's a very difficult position that he's in. But in general, his policy is expediency. What What is working? And if it's working, don't don't worry about trying to fix it. So when he takes over the Persian uh, Empire, he essentially leaves the scaffolding of Persian imperialism in place. He just removes the uh, already appointed Persian satraps and places his own guys in charge of the, the workings of the empire. So when he when he suddenly dies in in Babylon in 323, what happens is you know he, he doesn't have an heir. His his uh his Asian bride uh, Roxana is pregnant, but she's about eight months pregnant. And she has not given birth yet. They don't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl, and so essentially it falls to his inner circle of companions and sort of high uh, officers to try to figure out well how are we going to hold this thing together? What's what's the plan moving forward? And that story is a story of um, deception, 
betrayal and bloodshed. It's uh, it's quite um, it's it's quite the the disaster that they the these warriors go into business for themselves rather quickly. They squabble for power and authority. They backstab one another and they pull apart the Macedonian Empire and start establishing their own imperial spaces. Uh, Seleucus the first is is an example of one of these successors. Uh, and he's the one who is going to found the the Seleucid Empire across the the Middle Eastern landscape. And Seleucus is Macedonian, yes. Correct. Yeah. So he was one of the officers of Alexander, uh, as were many of the successors. Right. They were either close bodyguards, friends, um, or or uh, actual um, generals of his. And they go through a series of what we might consider civil wars. Um, it's essentially kind of the Greeks and the Macedonians doing what the Greeks and the Macedonians do best, which is killing one another. Mm-hmm. And um, essentially when Alexander's out of the way, they decide to try to grab what they can uh, when they can. And you have you know famous stories of like Ptolemy I taking up his, his satrapy in Egypt and stealing the body of Alexander to legitimize himself as a as a sort of standalone ruler in that territory, uh, Seleucus, who actually has quite a rough go of it, he he originally is uh, is sort of pushed out into the very eastern reaches of the the Macedonian Empire, um, chased off by Antigonus the first, who's also known as Antigonus the One-Eyed because he lost a, an eye in battle. Um, but eventually, sort of from this very precarious position, he starts gaining momentum in the east. He puts together a good coalition, starts getting resources and an army together, and he comes back triumphantly and takes over uh, Persia and then also Mesopotamia. And he's really well placed in sort of the later wars of the successors to really have a lot of agency and a lot of uh, authority. And ultimately, he's able to put together the largest of the successor kingdoms, as I mentioned, stretching at its height. Uh, it, it's really does. It stretches from the Ionian coast uh, on, in Western Asia Minor and Syria all the way to the Hindu Kush. Um, so he's he's able to to grasp the most territory out of all of the successors. Um, but like most of the successors, his war, his his life is a, a life of war and combat and and trials and tribulations, and he will die bloody like most of them. He's going to be assassinated, kind of at the height of his power. So he reestablishes, with the exception of of Egypt, um, he reestablishes the Achaemenid uh, Empire, uh, the imperial sway. Is that pretty much? More, yeah, pretty very much. very close. Egypt, and then you could also say the Balkans are, are outside mm-hmm. of his domain. But in general, he he is. He gets as close as as anyone to reasserting the um, reasserting the imperial domain of the Achaemenids, and also almost getting to the territorial extent of Alexander's uh, empire. So, uh, who's he fighting then? Uh, who's left to fight? I mean, I, I guess Ptolemy, uh, Antigonus's successors, um, but who else? Yeah. So, so the Seleucus fights. Against Antigonus the first, he's he's the main uh, antagonist of the Seleucids in in the early stages. Um, Antigonus the first, actually, again, kind of to underscore how how much of a, a warrior generation this is. Antigonus is going to die fighting in battle in his eighties. Um, mm-hmm. These these are career warriors who fight their entire existence and usually die violently. Um, and you know, if Alexander's your best friend and your your role model, that's that's what you're going to lean into anyway, right? Is is kind of that warrior ethos. Uh, but once Antigonus is out of the way, then his son Demetrius becomes kind of a rival. Uh, although Demetrius shifts his goals to Greece and Macedon and starts fighting 
uh, with Cassander um, in in these regions. Uh, but yeah, Ptolemy, Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom in Egypt will become the traditional Hellenistic rival of the Seleucids. They're going to fight numerous uh, wars, mostly over the Levant, so the eastern Mediterranean coast. Uh, as far as what what else are they doing in the east? They they have an extensive frontier, um, which is, you know, it shares a border with the southern Central Asian steppe. It has uh, a border with uh, the Hindu Kush and, and essentially what would be the modern state of, of Pakistan. And Seleucus himself actually does campaign in India. He, he marches out to try to emulate Alexander and to reestablish control of essentially the Indus River Valley. But while he's out there, he runs into the Mauryan Empire, which is forming in India. And the Mauryans have essentially, unlike where Alexander moved into Italy and it was a fractured landscape and the Indians were fighting amongst themselves and they didn't sort of have any cohesion, they, they didn't pool their resources. A generation later, the Mauryan dynasty has arisen in India and is starting to unite uh, the various Indian sub-kingdoms and tribes into one sort of identity and focus. And Seleucus very quickly realizes that he does not have the resources or the time to conduct a major war against an actual imperial power in India. So he's going to cut a deal with the uh, the Mauryan Indians. And what he does is he essentially says, you know what, I'll give up some of these really distant, I'll give up my claim to some of these really distant lands on my eastern frontier that, you know, really would be a pain for me to hold on to anyway. Uh, in exchange, I want 500 uh, trained war elephants for my wars in the uh, in the West against my my fellow Hellenistic successors. So he kind of cuts this deal, and that that really solidifies that eastern frontier moving forward in time, where you sort of have this separate Indian landscape uh, that's separate from the Iranian or, or or Middle Eastern landscape, and it in essence kind of becomes a um, a, a relatively stable eastern frontier at that moment. the The problem in the east increasingly will not come from India; it'll come from the north. Uh, the Central Asian steppe, which which many empires in the Middle East have had problems with their their northern frontier with the Central Asian steppe for obvious reasons. But uh, the main reason, the one that I focus on in this class, is that there's a lot of militarized nomadic peoples up there that are looking for access to stability and prosperity by penetrating the Iranian plateau. And the Parthians are certainly one of those groups. So so that that's perfect. So who are the Parthians? Uh, do we have any idea where they came from prior to their entering into the Seleucid uh, domains? Yeah, so so this again, it, it it's not as cut and dry um, as as the name Parthians might might seem. Uh, there is a region in northeastern Iran called Parthia, um, and it's a, a well-established ancient region uh, that is a part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, for example. Um, it, it's a part of Alexander's empire, part of the Seleucid empire. So it, one of the difficult things about talking about the origin of this people is that we have to separate the regional identity of Parthia from the, the tribal identity of the people who are going to settle in Parthia. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so on the, on the central Asian steppe, there's numerous sort of, um, nomadic, semi-nomadic peoples who are generally trying to um, create these sort of de facto coalitions, these confederations. And and one of these confederations that's right on the edge of what would, again, be modern day northern Iran is a, a group known as the Dahai, uh, D-A-H-A-E. 
And the Dahai tribe is, is really, it's not really a tribe, it's a coalition of other tribes that have kind of come together in this, this sort of self-identity. And, the, and there's a small group of sort of subgroup within this larger confederation known as the Parni. And the Parni, that's really the origin of what we would traditionally call the Parthians. Um, so the Parni are this this you know nomadic semi nomadic group that are they're really really located in what would be today Western Turkmenistan, mm-hmm. um, roughly around the middle third century BCE, and they're in kind of a precarious situation. There's been a lot of sort of movements of people across the Central Asian steppe in recent generations. There's been displacements, warfare. Uh, we have a bit of a migration or a refugee crisis going on at this time. And there's a lot of pressure that's sort of moving from east to west. And it's kind of pushing almost like a domino effect, pushing on on sort of subsequent um, Central Asian tribes. And since the Parni are kind of at the end, right, they're, they're at the end of this, of this sort of uh, row of dominoes at the edge of the Seleucid Empire, they decide to, uh, in essence, in order to protect themselves and to sort of try to figure out some sort of sense of security to start striking out to the south. And they they try at first to penetrate sort of towards Bactria, which would be ancient Afghanistan. Um, this doesn't work out, at least initially. So they decide, well, maybe we'll try the other direction. And they have more success penetrating to the southwest into Iran. Uh, and and once, once the Parni do so, under their first king, a man named Arsaces I, they're able to establish a minor kingdom in northwestern Iran that is the territory of Parthia. And this is where we start seeing the blended identity of essentially the Parni assimilate into the Parthian established population. Hmm. And moving forward, those identities are the same. So essentially, you lose that Parni identity, it becomes just traditional Parthians. What I sometimes say to clarify is I call them Arsacid Parthians because yes. they are ruled by the Arsacid dynasty. So, and one imagines, and this happens in other places as too, with different groups of nomads, the Parni become Parthians and the Parthians become Parni. Um, in, and they, yes, in essence. Yeah, in essence. And they, and they blend together their certain uh, unique set of capabilities and sets of skills. Um, the Parni are remarkable for how they fight, which is different than the way it has similarities to how other nomads fight. But I believe, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they also are unique in in sort of their armor and the way and some other uh, some of their other cultural um, fighting ways. Could you could you explain that? Yeah, so so scholars or or fans of say the Turks or the Mongols or the Huns, this fighting style would be very familiar to them. Mm-hmm. It's it's a nomadic style of warfare, um, hit and run tactics in essence. Um, the what separates the Parthians from those later examples, the Huns, the Turks, and the Mongols, is that the Parthians do it do it first in 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 the sense that they're the ones that they're the ones that make this style of warfare. Um, well-known to the Greco-Roman world. And now the, the Greeks and the Romans, they are aware of the Scythians, is which they, they, they just call all nomadic peoples to, uh-huh. to the north in the Eurasian landscape, Scythians. And they're aware that the Scythians are up there and kind of aware of how they fight, which is mostly cavalry-based and they, they use archers, et cetera, et cetera. But the Parthians introduced this style of warfare into the larger Middle Eastern world in a in an imperial sense, which is new. And 
no, no power in world history has been able to take a nomadic style approach to warfare and apply it to a longstanding imperial space. And this is really a testament to the ability of the Parthians to to not only be fierce warriors, but also be very skilled imperialists. Um, they're, they're, they're going to be very flexible and adaptable in their sort of cultural identity. They're very willing to sort of adopt and adapt and borrow things that they come into contact with, whether it be Persian or Greek, um, and and sort of decide how to use that and how best to to apply that to their society. Uh, specifically within their military, though, we don't see that. We don't we don't see over essentially 400 to 500 years of history, really any evolution of their military towards more traditional standard models of, you know, the Achaemenid Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, where infantry is is sort of the name of the game. Uh, the, the Parthians are a cavalry-based military for their entire history. They're in a cavalry-based society based on those nomadic roots of the, of the Parni tribe. And what this means is that that they essentially usually have less military resources than most of their rivals, like the Seleucids and the Romans, but they're very good at using the resources that they have and maximizing their effectiveness on the battlefield. What do you mean they have less military resources? What, what's that? Why is that connected to being a cavalry oriented? So, for example, the the Seleucid Empire at its height has perhaps one hundred and fifty thousand soldiers in a professional army. Um, and the Romans at, at their height uh, have over 350,000 uh, warriors um, that are professional soldiers. Uh, the Parthians don't have a professional army. It's, it's, a, it's a different approach that, again, has sort of that tribal origin to it. Uh, they would have, of course, a warrior class that is a de facto professional class. These are aristocrats who have the leisure time and the ability to essentially practice warfare and conduct warfare whenever they want. But they are not a, a traditional professional army like we would see with the Macedonians or the Greeks. In essence, what generally happens is that when it's time for war, the king, the, the Arsacid king, would call upon his nobles to essentially raise up their retainers. And you would have a, a meeting place, and then you would sort of organize and collect a military force. And essentially, you would use that force over the course of the military season. Uh, many scholars kind of associate this sort of with medieval feudalism. Yeah, I was going to say medieval it looks a lot like to, to, to us like medieval European European systems of war. Yes, yeah. So I would say that there are elements that if there's enough of a if a Ving diagram there would be enough of an overlap there that I I don't think that that is an unrealistic representation. Um I try and I, I do so in the book also. I, I try to emphasize that this this system of imperialism isn't feudalism. It, it's right. It's maybe adjacent, but it, it's not what it, it's not simply cut and paste the same thing that's going to happen in medieval in medieval Europe. Uh, also, feudalism because of the term of it and because of the you know the ongoing rivalry between ancient historians and medievalists. Uh, feudalism has kind of a, a pejorative sense to it, where it's 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 seen as a as a criticism uh, of a of a sort of a baser form of mm -hmm. governmental and societal. Uh, organization compared to the the great classical empires, you know, of of the Greeks and the Romans and and the Persians. So, yeah. um, it it has sort of that sense in the, that the the king has a limited group of soldiers that he can directly call upon and is much more reliant on a network of allies and vassals. Um, but that being said, it has some advantages for the Arsacid kings in in the sense that you don't have to spend the ruinous amounts of money 
on a standing professional army, a lot of those costs and a lot of those responsibilities are are actually placed on your your nobles instead of yourself. So it, it's it's one of those things. It's a very difficult system to manage, and it's a testament to the Arsacid kings that they're able to do so so efficiently. But um, but it, the, the the idea being is the Persians make it. Or sorry, the Parthians make it work very well, and it, it it allows them to continue what they do best, which is their hit and run cavalry based style of warfare. Um, it, do they have a um? Do they have heavy cavalry? You refer to the use of massed assaults. Yes. Um, do they have, unlike, say, more other groups of, like the, is it the Sakai or the other Scythian? My impression reading the book was that there were certain Parthians who were um, armored such that they could deliver a very, what we would think of as a heavy cavalry assault. Yes. Um, and that's a little different. But they could blend that together with different lighter cavalry, which did the hit and run, the feigned retreat, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. So the the composition of the the Parthian army in general is eighty percent light armed horse archers, and these would be on smaller, faster, more sort of sturdy mounts. Mm-hmm. And they're they almost are completely unarmed uh, as far as armor is concerned. And they they will have um, essentially a bow and a supply of arrows. And it's their job to move in and out of, of combat very rapidly, confusing, you know, sort of uh, disorienting the enemy, uh, striking where, where there are weaknesses. And they're there to sort of harass and manipulate the enemy to, to move them around and, and, again, kind of distract them. The Parthians develop a really important and fundamental second part of their military approach, which is their heavy cavalry known as cataphracts. Um, cataphract in Greek, uh, cataphractoi, it literally means sort of encased in in armor. Um, these are these are kind of the first knights, if you will, um, mm-hmm. where the rider and the horse, pretty much from head to toe, are protected by by uh, by armor. And this process of the cataphract, it's much debated among scholars as to kind of what the origin is and when they become popularized. Uh, we know that the other uh, Central Asian tribes are using a form of heavy cavalry that, uh, that you know, the armoring of rider and horse isn't, in a sense, completely revolutionary in the Parthian period. Uh, what, what seems likely is... The Macedonians also have a heavy cavalry, their companion cavalry that they use, right? They, they use the uh, the hammer and anvil tactic, right? Where the anvil is his, is the phalanx and the hammer is the heavy cav. And the idea is that you hold your, your enemy on your phalanx and then you flank with your cavalry. And that's how Alexander wins battle after battle after battle. Uh, once he reaches ancient Afghanistan, uh, essentially Bactria and Sogdiana, he's going to start fighting wars against these Central Asian peoples. And he recognizes that their cavalry is armed with more, it it has more armor on it. And he kind of likes this idea. So he sort of takes and tweaks elements of that for his army. And at the same time, the Central Asian tribes realize that the pike used by the Macedonian cavalry is very effective. And so they start adopting the Macedonian pike into their sort of style of cavalry warfare. This is the environment that the Parni are developing in. So they are a part of this kind of political, or sorry, this uh, military evolution. And they're going to take these ideas. And once they establish themselves in, um, in, Ar- in Iran, where they have better access to uh, iron, for example, um, they're going to start 
implementing more and more protection for their cavalry in the form of, again, head-to-toe armaments for their their riders and their horses. These cataphractoi, these cataphracts, they're going to become the heavy cavalry of their age. There's no other sort of response to this. And we know that we know that this this development by the Parthians is indeed seen by others and recognized as this is something new and this is something that we can really use because it's after interactions with the Parthians that the Seleucids start introducing cataphracts into their army. We start seeing the Armenians and Pontus also adopt these sort of uh, these these heavily armed uh, cataphracts into their army, and so the the really the origin of that of that two punch right the the light armed missile troops, the horse archers, and then these really heavily armored shock troops in the cataphracts, this is going to allow the Parthians to be very successful militarily because in essence, what they do is they can rush on an enemy with their horse archers and harass and distract and sort of um, create chaos. And then if the enemy is not disciplined and breaks ranks and opens a gap, that's where the heavy cavalry strikes, uh, you know, delivers that sort of killing blow that, 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 sort of knockout punch, if you will. And they're able to use these two portions of their military approach in tandem very effectively. Uh, and this is the the sort of the feign retreat, defeat in detail mode of warfare that I emphasize in my book, that they, they're really clever about when to attack and when to retreat and how to manipulate their enemy. Just to uh, elaborate this historically uh, and take it forward, I mean, this is such a, a huge change and uh, actually, let's say in human history for the next 2,000 years, um, I'm just thinking about this. This is something the Romans will eventually also copy, uh, cataphract, Byzantine term. Byzantines will take this. They'll run with it. Eventually, the, the Franks will go from being people who fight on foot with axes to being people with spears on horseback. Put the stirrup in there. You got yourself the medieval knight. It's fantastic. But even I was this thing, I was on another podcast, they were banging on all week about El Alamein. Um, at least in the first part of World War II, we still had light tanks and heavy tanks. And that's a direct, that goes all the way back to the Parthians, the idea that those two things go together. Uh, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, light armor, heavy armor. Um, it's really a, it, it's a cultural system which has amazing longevity when you think of it like that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and it uh, uh, one last thing that that is worth considering at least as far as the, as you were kind of talking about the the westward flow of this concept of heavy cavalry, is access to the mounts, the the actual horses themselves. That once the Parthians penetrate the Iranian plateau, the Persians were renowned for the size and speed and strength of their of their mounts. And once the Parthians gain access increasingly to these these really um, sort of superior horses, this allows them again to really lean into this this heavy uh, cavalry model. Um, mm. Something that again, as as these mounts are traded and bred across the the European landscape, that's also kind of part and parcel to, to why these things become increasingly popular in, in a Western context as well. You, you, you need you need the right horse to fit the style of, of warfare. Now about state, we've talked about the military adaptability and military innovations. Um, and that sort of kind of indicates perhaps a little bit about how they go around building states. If it's only the king, only the monarch has 
uh, sort of household cavalry, household troops. It's the lords who have um, who bring men with them to war. Then there's a certain uh, um, there's a certain decentralization going on in Parthia as compared to sort of the Alexander's way of doing business or certainly the Roman way of doing business. Is that, is that correct? And is that, I guess that decentralization has both advantages and disadvantages. Yes. Yeah. So it would seem it it is more decentralized than the Imperial States developed by uh, the Seleucids and the Romans. Um, Mm It's, it's a system that has to be more flexible. Um, because there isn't that strong centralized kind of scaffolding and infrastructure uh, like we see with with the the western imperial states of, of the ancient world now that has traditionally been seen as a criticism of the parthians mm-hmm. that they are inferior lesser than people who who couldn't um who essentially they, they couldn't put together an empire like the macedonians or the romans um, I, I, of course, very vehemently push back against that, that this, this is, this is simply a, a reflection of a different environment, a different cultural emphasis, a different imperial emphasis, and that the Parthians actually make this, this different approach to imperialism very effective. They're, they're the longest lasting, uh, Middle Eastern state. Uh, it, it's, it's quite amazing that the longevity that the the Arsacids have and what the Arsacids are what are what they're able to do which is quite brilliant is from the very origin of their dynasty under Arsaces the first so Arsaces the first he right he becomes the the king of the Parthian of the Parni tribe in roughly about 248 247 BCE he's crowned and in and really in this in his crowning on top of uh, as, as the leader of this tribe he's He's really not in a position of really great authority or power. He's essentially just sort of a warlord who's been accepted by his people to lead them to military victory. And what he starts doing is he starts, you know, trying to strike out and gain access to some sort of territory for him to conquer. He eventually founds the the kingdom in Parthia. But through this process, he wins over the loyalty of not only his people, the Parni, but also the loyalty of the indigenous population and the indigenous nobility of Parthia itself. He's very clever in this early stage not to make it a top-down minority rule. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want his Parni as sort of this um, this uh, this minority uh, uh, set of no of nobility over a subjected Parthian. Uh, my, uh, majority and and instead what he does is he embraces the Parthians, uh, the established indigenous Parthians and their nobility, and brings them in as equals and mm-hmm. and essentially builds this this coalition of of incoming migrants and already established peoples. And through this process, again, he wins over a lot of people. He gains a lot of loyalty. It becomes essentially standard through his successes. That okay, the Arsacid dynasty. This is the dynasty to rule this new kind of coalition of of the willing and the able. These these uh, subject and ally communities, uh, and it becomes tradition moving forward. Just like you would say. So even our sources point to this this idea that um, in the Roman world, when the Roman Empire starts, the Romans always call the new emperor Augustus or Caesar based on the great accomplishments of Julius Caesar and Octavian Augustus. 
The same thing happens with the Arsasa dynasty. It doesn't matter what the dynasty's actual name is, whether it's Fraates or you know, um, you know, Mithridates. His regal name is Arsaces. It always goes back to that original founding father, the founder of that sort of dynasty and that identity. And unlike the Romans, who have a terrible streak of imperial succession, um, we have family after family, and they're butchering each other at, at unbelievable um, clips. The Arsacid dynasty really is incredibly stable and and well managed throughout the entirety of this Hellenistic period, um, really to the end of of where I I, I stopped my book, which is the first century. That it only really starts changing drastically once they've um, once they've uh, sort of already conquered the entire Middle East. It's it's a strength to the early uh, cause of the Parthians that the dynasty is so stable. Yeah, now well, now you've intrigued me when you when you let that drop. Uh, how are they so stable? I mean, because this is a this is a problem for the Persians as well. Um, how do they manage to have a dynastic stability? And so, in these early stages, they um, they well, certainly with any dynasty, there's a there's a little bit of luck involved. Certainly, all right, the, the right person takes over the reins at the right time, um, but. As far as the system of inheritance goes with the Arsacids, it is not a traditional father-son dynastic approach where we have many examples of actually where uncles or brothers inherit the throne over adult sons. And the idea being, at least in the early Arsacid dynasty, that the best man should be the next king and not simply who has the, the closest blood claim to that right. Uh, and this this really pays dividends for them in the sense that uh, over the course of this early dynasty, you have a series of fairly effective to very effective and almost universally very accomplished militarily and brave, courageous warriors. And this this helps the Parthians do what the Parthians do best, which is fight and expand and, and sort of um, build a, 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 again, a kind of a coalition imperial force. And how does that work, though? Because in, in other situations like that, you have uncle fighting uncle, or you know, brother yep. fighting uncle fighting nephew. I mean, is this is it is it simply the eldest, or is there is there a, 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 is there a will by the monarch about which who will follow him based upon this cultural expectation of the strong man, the strong warrior, the the perhaps the older warrior being the successor? What's, yes. What's, so, so there's two parts. There's two parts there that I, I would like to address. So, the first one is, unfortunately for the Parthians, dynastic instability and violence is going to become a part of their family, beginning in the first century BCE and moving forward. In particular, sort of the after Mithridates the uh, second, where I end the book and 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 moving forward, there there's a period of a lot of internal violence where, essentially, family members who traditionally accepted the the best candidate start to uh, instead try to assert their own power and authority, even if they weren't chosen, um, which causes civil wars and, and all sorts of things that we've become very accustomed to in, in the Macedonian and the Roman worlds. In this early period, as far as how they're selected, there's some debate amongst this because, again, our source traditions almost... 95% of it come from the Greeks and the Romans. So these are outside point of views that um, are sometimes hostile and sometimes cursory. And um, the 
the sense from the Romans is that the Parthians have a council of essentially aristocrats and wise men who convenes and agree upon who is going to be the next king. And if that model is correct, then it's a sort of collective decision by those who have power and authority to this is the best person to now take over the military and take over the empire. Um, so there's certainly maybe an element of kind of oligarchy built into the the succession of, of the, the Arsacid kings. But we do have other examples, especially really early in, in the history of the rise of Parthia, where the kings themselves make these decisions. So I'm thinking specifically of a king called Phraates I. And Phraates I has a brother named Mithridates. And Phraates I is an aggressive Parthian king. He decides to start expanding. He conquers a neighboring tribe that was you know, very well known for their, their military prowess. And it just so happens that right before he finishes his conquest, he's going to die of either wounds or old age. And on his deathbed, he decides to pass over several of his adult sons in favor of his younger brother, Mithridates. And according to our sources, the reason he does this is because he knows that this is best for the state. He knows that this is best for the army, that Mithridates, his brother who fought with him in the wars as a accomplished soldier and an accomplished administrator, he feels very confident that Mithridates will carry on in the right direction and do the right thing. And so he chooses his brother over his sons. Now, in this instance, again, the what what we would think is kind of the norm in the Roman or the Macedonian model, where the sons would rise up in rebellion against their uncle, that doesn't happen. It seems that Mithridates had enough, had enough sort of um, support, uh, enough gravitas perhaps to keep the family together and and focus the energies on outside enemies. And and Mithridates the first turns out to be one of the most important successful early Arsacid kings. He's he's going to conquer Bactria. He's going to conquer Medea, uh, which is is essentially northeast uh, uh, northwestern Iran, and he's going to. Uh, also annex Babylonia. So he's going to, his brother was right. He, he, he really does lead the Parthians in the right direction and they're, they're quite successful. So there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of shade covering the, the answer that you're seeking uh, that mm -hmm. we don't, we don't exactly know. It seems to be some sort of a mixture of the will of the Kings and the judgment of the Kings mixed with sort of an oligarchic council that, you know, either, either advises the King or rubber stamps the decision of the King. Let's go back to the origins here. Arsacis the first is roughly what are what are his dates? Uh so he's he takes the crown in essentially about two forty eight. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he is going to have a very, very long reign until about two eleven okay. BCE. So and a generation. So, so is he is he a um a tributary of the Seleucids is he, or, or is he on still on the outskirts of the Seleucid Empire, or are they nurturing this, you know, virus within their within? Are they a host to this virus? Yeah. Um, so, so again, a, a great question, and also not one that I can answer, and it, you know, succinctly. I'll, I'll uh -huh. try to to do my best. So, so in essence, the Seleucid Empire starts crumbling from within. You have these strong governors regionally that start breaking off from central authority. The central authority of the Seleucids drifts further and further west to Syria. And in essence, you have 
a weak king, Seleucus II, or a relatively weak king, Seleucus II, who comes to the throne, and he starts fighting a civil war with his brother. His brother wants power as well. And during the civil war, the governors in the east, in Bactria and Parthia, the Seleucid governors, that is, they break away. They form independent rebel states, if you will. Um, the rebel state in Parthia, that's the state that Arsaces invades and conquers. Okay. So he's going to conquer this this um, this sort of rebellious Parthian state. And he's going to settle it and create his own kingdom. Now, the, the king of the Seleucids, Seleucus II, he's going to invade the east to try to regain these eastern territories. And according to our, our source tradition, um, he is going to have some initial success. But ultimately, he's going to be overwhelmed by Arsaces. And Arsaces is going to score a surprising and, and it's seemingly decisive victory over Seleucus II. Now, I will say, not all scholars uh, are on the same page here. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of room to read in between the lines. Um, most scholars accept that Arsaces and the Parthians win this war, and it allows them to establish an independent kingdom in northeastern Iran. Some scholars, like Ralf Strutman, who's a, who's a, a scholar of the Seleucid state, he he takes a more conservative approach. He he favors uh, that the the Seleucids vassalize the uh, Parthians at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, I I find that in my research, there's really no proof for this until the later Eastern invasion of Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third. This is the Grand Eastern invasion. Um, basically, Antiochus the Third wants to emulate Alexander the Great. He puts together a humongous army. And he's going to forcibly subjugate the Parthians for about a generation. Uh, but we have to understand that what, when we're what, what, what years? What year are those? Uh, and so Antiochus invades the east in um, in two ten. Okay. So so right after the death of Arsaces the first. That's probably um, not an accident. That's right. That's right after Arsaces. It's death. it's certainly bad timing for the for the Parthians. Uh, there's no yeah. doubt about that. Um, uh, and and when we're when we're talking about the Seleucids and their imperial power in the east, we have to understand that it's it's always fluid. It's the Seleucids rule those eastern territories only if they're strong enough to actually assert their imperial dominance over those territories. And so, essentially, what you kind of begin seeing is this generational cycle, where every generation a Seleucid king has to go on what's known as an, an anabasis, an Eastern campaign, a, you know, a campaign into the interior of the Middle East to reassert the dominance of the Seleucids over these Eastern territories. So even though, even though um, Antiochus is able to subjugate the Parthians, and, and I don't think there's any debate that he's able to do so, roughly in 208, um, once he dies in 187, basically that, that, that status of, of subject and ruler, it fades away and the Parthians start going into business for themselves again. So it's it's something that ebbs and flows. It changes over time, depending on the circumstances of that time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the um, you refer in the book to the Iranian interstate system. Um, this seems to be a, a key concept. Uh, this is for the Seleucids, by this time, they're in Syria. I guess they're in Antioch, their capital, by some point. But they're much farther west, uh, and increasingly, that that distant eastern bit uh, of Iran is is it is it splintering? And then the the uh, the Parthians are able to take advantage of that by dominating that interstate system. 
Yeah, so so that's what I argue in the book anyway, is that essentially, and this isn't new to any any large imperial power is usually, it has different, it has sort of different international environments that it's active in. Um, you know, Russia is a great example of that. Right? Russia has a, an, a Western concern and it has an Eastern concern. Um, same with the Seleucids. The, the Seleucids increasingly have a Western preference and a Western concern because they are Macedonians and they are concerned with the Greek world. They are mm-hmm. they're concerned with the Ptolemies in Egypt. They're worried about the Antigonids in Macedon. They're worried about the various Greek poles across, you know, Anatolia and, and southern Greece. So it's not surprising that Seleucus I, who made his capital in Mesopotamia, that within a generation, that capital gets moved to Syria on the coastline of the Mediterranean to connect the Seleucids to the wider Greek world of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and Antioch becomes that, that new capital uh, in, in the West for the Seleucids. And what that means is because the Seleucids are continually distracted with Western concerns, they neglect all of these Eastern developments, um, not because not because they're doing it on purpose, it's because they can't be in two places at once. And so the Eastern world becomes more isolated and more independent in its actions and its thoughts. And this leads to, again, right, those rebellions that I talked about, the invasions of peoples like the like the Parni. And so within this within this changing international environment, I see essentially two separate um, two separate areas. There's the Eastern Mediterranean with its geopolitical sort of um, points of emphasis. And then there's the Iranian plateau, which has now its own um, geopolitical points of, of emphasis. And within that Iranian plateau, the three big players are going to be the independent, independent kingdom of Bactria, the uh, independent kingdom of the Parthians, and then also the Seleucid Empire, because the Seleucid Empire still factors in this in this Eastern environment as well. Uh, and so essentially you have what's known again, is, is kind of a tripolar or a three-man uh, system, a three-power a three power system. And there's this ongoing kind of tension and rivalry. And, and eventually what happens over the course of, of the second century is that the Parthians ultimately win. They, they're going to dominate the system. They're going to dominate and conquer the, the Iranian plateau. They will um, overtake the, the Bactrians, and then they will start increasingly making Western incursions, like I said, into places like Medea and then Mesopotamia. But the Iranian plateau becomes their heartland. It becomes the center of their power. I mean, yes. the, the, the horses, the taxes, whatever else they get, the, the, the manpower that they get from the Iranian plateau, that enables them to, to take on Bactria, enables them to take on Mesopotamia and points farther west. Correct. Yeah. In essence, yes. It becomes the the initial homeland where they are making their money. This is their resources. This is where they're raising their soldiers. Um, they, they will eventually start drifting more to the west once they take Medea and Mesopotamia because those two regions are so fundamentally important to a, a, a Middle Eastern power. Um, and this is actually coincides pretty well with, remember when I talked about the, the, the stability of the Arsacid dynasty to essentially the first century BCE? Well, it just so happens that in that moment, you start seeing this growing divide between the Eastern aristocracy of the Parthians and the Western aristocracy of the Parthians. And all of a sudden you have these two factions that the Mm. kings are having to placate and favor one over the other. And because of that factionalism, that's where you start seeing the civil wars emerge. Because if the Eastern aristocrats don't get the king they want, 
they can raise their own king in opposition. And so these these things, the imperialism kind of the the success of the the Parthians in some time in some way kind of becomes one of their problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so weird that this whole thing because you know I'm listening to you and it's like I had this conversation already with Llewellyn Jones about the Persians because sure. this this is the complexity. Here's another nomadic power comes down to the Iran plateau, eventually it takes control, takes the Medes, and then moves farther. It's like it's like it's complete recapitulation. I know on a very broad level. And sure. use, yep. using using a few watercolors, it's a recapitulation of what's already happened 500 years before, something like that. Um, it's very, very odd. Um, let me ask you an impossibly subjective question. Uh, what was it like to be have the Parthians as your overlords? I mean, sort of the lord of your lord. Um, I'm thinking like to the early, would it be early 400s? Uh, or you know, if you're an Ionian Greek, it's not bad having the Persians around. Um, roads are maintained, uh, law and order. You get to still be Greek. You get to do your Greek things. You get to go and study, you know, with Heraclitus or what have you. Um, but you decide to revolt anyway because, you know, what the hell? Uh, what's it like to have – what's it like when the Parthians come to town? Uh, what's, what, sort of, what sort of freedoms does one have at the local level in, in, in Syria or Mesopotamia? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so, in particular, and and again, I, I argue this in the, in the book is that the style of imperialism of the Parthians is less intrusive and less um, sort of uh, might be the best words. It's less. Um, Yeah, it, I mean, intrusive might be the best way to put it. it. It it's not as predatory as what we see under the Seleucids who come before them. The Seleucids are a very top-down. The Greeks and the Macedonians are in control um, approach to imperialism, and it's it's very sort of the extraction of local resources for the you know, the traditional Macedonian wars of the Macedonian dynasts. With the Arsacid dynasty, and, and the Persians do this pretty well also, it, there's more of an inclusion into the structure of the empire in the sense that the Arsacid dynasty, because it doesn't have that humongous sort of uh, imperial infrastructure that the Romans and, and the Seleucids develop, they have to be good negotiators. They have to be able to have some diplomacy and, and some give and take. They understand the importance of their noble class, and they want to work generally with that nor that noble class. And so when, when you're talking about what, what is it like being a subject of the Arsacid Parthians, well, you have more local autonomy um, than you were used to before. So basically, as long as you're paying your taxes and you bring soldiers to the army when the, the king calls for it. Um, locally, you can govern yourself. You can worship freely. Uh, there's no there's no worries about, you know, um, religious persecution under the Arsacids. Uh, so there's there's that. And then also, uh, in general, the, the Arsacids are very good about recognizing talent and making sure that essentially men are, are, are um, men are favored based on merit. And so if you can demonstrate that you're a skilled 
person in the Parthian world, there's a lot of socioeconomic economic mobility for you, which is something, again, that a lot of people are, are very keen on. And, and I think it's, again, it's a testament to this kind of um, softer imperialism, this this less heavy-handed imperialism of the Osasids, that the tradition of, and, and again, the Romans and the Greeks emphasize this over and over in their sources, is that Whenever the king dies, there's never a debate as to if another family should take over. It's always, well, it has to be one of the Arsacids. They have to be king. And so they essentially create this this very adaptable, very flexible, um, less evasive form of imperialism that most people buy into and are quite happy under. Um, As I mentioned, once there's that rift between the Western and the Eastern aristocracy, the fight really becomes between the nobles themselves. It's not really, we want to get rid of the king. They want the king. They just want to be the ones that are favored by the king. Um, and so the, the Arsacids, unlike the Seleucids and really unlike the Achaemenids, they don't they don't deal with internal rebellions very often. It's, it's very rare. That's interesting. Um, most, most examples of you know an internal rebellion are regions that are recently conquered. And really what it is, it's just a continuation of the war. Is that the Parthians have occupied something, but they haven't actually defeated um, um, or arranged a, a working re- relationship with the with the, the new subject community, and there's there's still tensions there. Uh, but you don't have mass uprisings or or things along those lines um, that w- that we see in other sort of imperial states. The the other factor that that perhaps is interesting for your for your listeners is that unlike Unlike the Seleucids, who had a great deal of problems controlling their eastern territories, the Parthians have a fairly good run of stabilizing that that large and sometimes very vulnerable eastern frontier. Uh, a part of this, I think, is the fact that because they have that sort of Central Asian background and, and part of their identity is that sort of nomadic element of the Central Asian peoples, is they're able to build working relationships with these other tribal peoples in Central Asia pretty well. And in fact, we'll rely upon them a lot for trade, rely upon them a lot for soldiers. And so there's mostly a pretty good working relationship with these tribes. Of course, there are there are hiccups. There's no doubt. There's going to be times of, of tension and, and violence. But in general, it's a pretty good working relationship that allows a fairly stable eastern frontier for many centuries. And it allows the Parthians to to focus more on Western expansion. Kind of to your earlier point, you know, this idea that you sort of see this over and over again, this sort of focus, this tendency to move west. Um, part of that is the fact that they stabilize the east and so they can focus more and more on expanding to the west. Well, there's, uh, we're running out of time and there's still lots of things I'd like to ask you about. For example, the, the Parthian uh, diplomacy or connections with China. I know that there, Ch- there are Chinese sources that illuminate something about uh, Parthia. Yep. Uh, but we should, uh, we should kill off the Seleucids. Um, at what point do they uh, finally uh, implode or are, the, or are they pushed? Ooh, that's the great question, isn't it? That that's there's been a lot of ink spilled on that exact question. Um, it's you know to be fair, it's a little bit of both. But um, what I would push back on is there is a narrative amongst the majority of scholarship that it's the Romans that caused the precipitous decline and fall of the Seleucids. The great example is always the Battle of Magnesia against Antiochus III, where the Romans defeat the Seleucids in Greece and then defeat them in Asia Minor. And for many Romanist scholars, you know, that's the end. You know, case closed. 
uh, the Seleucids are are no more, and the Romans are the top dog. Uh, I push back against that, arguing that actually the the Seleucid Empire remains a major, major power, and and really the the foundational or, or fundamental, the the primary power in the Middle East for several more generations. And it's not it's not the Romans that undercut and ultimately lead to the decline and fall of the Seleucids. In large part, it's the Seleucids themselves. They constantly are bickering and fighting amongst themselves. But really, if you're looking for an outside pressure that that facilitates the fall of the Seleucids, it's the Parthians. It's not the Romans. Uh, the Parthians are going to annex the Iranian plateau. They're going to take over important regions like Medea and Mesopotamia. And they're going to defeat Seleucid king after Seleucid king after Seleucid king. The Romans only defeat one Seleucid king. The, the Parthians deletes, uh, de- defeats several of them. And the the real nail in the coffin for the Seleucids is a later campaign by a king named Antiochus VII. I know the names, right? They just use the same regal names over and over again. But Antiochus VII, Antiochus, it's all the he's same. going to put together a large force and he's going to invade Mesopotamia and Medea in the hopes of defeating the Parthians and reclaiming these lands for the Seleucids. This is a hugely ambitious project. Uh, it's a testament to the continued power and authority and, and resources of the Seleucid state that Antiochus is able to do something like this. But uh, to make a long story short, he invades Mesopotamia. He, occupi- he occupies the region. He occupies uh, parts of Iran. Uh, And then at the height of his power and authority, the Parthians are going to organize an interior rebellion against him. So cities start revolting against him that he's occupied in Mesopotamia. Uh, This basically hamstrings him and and forces him to uh, make brash decisions. And one of his brash decisions is that he's going to leave his winter quarters. He's going to rush to try to save some of his garrisons in these Mesopotamian cities. And the Parthians are going to catch him. They're going to ambush his army and they're going to kill him. And they're going to kill the Seleucid king, Antiochus VII, and destroy his army. I mean, and when I say destroy, I mean, he loses everybody. It's a 100% net loss in this invasion. And that, that is the real death nail. That's the end of Seleucid power and authority. The Seleucids never again are going to be able to have those sorts of resources or manpower. They're never again going to threaten the Parthians as the imperial power over the Middle East. This is the great ultimate sort of triumph, if you will, of the Parthians. Um, and essentially after that moment, which which is essentially the, um, the early 120s BCE, uh, after that, the Seleucids turn inward and become increasingly distracted by civil war and dynastic chaos and become essentially a rump state in, in Syria. So that's 120s uh, BC. And after that, almost by, within a generation, Parthia will start to, and I can only imagine it, it starts to steadily bleed uh, with its wars with Rome. Yes. Yeah. So this this was your, your initial comment that, that my book uh, seems to sort of um kind of end right stuff. right before yeah. right mm-hmm. before right you get to the the stuff that most people know about which is the roman stuff um which i am i let me tell you, I, I deeply admire you for your chutzpah <laughs> to use a parthian word uh that you just that you just um that you start because it, it it's fascinating to it's cool to talk about the parthians you know for themselves yeah and, and that's that was really the motivation of the project is is that a a study of the parthians on their own terms was sorely needed and it was something that hadn't really been done in any sort of detail since the 1930s. It was it was really in need of a, an update, considering all the new great 
research that's been published, all the new arch uh, um, arch archaeological evidence, the numismatic evidence that we have, that um, the Parthians and trying to understand the Parthians on their own terms, I felt was something that really really needed to be done, not only for the scholarly community, but for a general audience as well. I, I know there are people who are interested in the Parthians, and all they ever hear is that they're just there and the Romans run into them. Um, so I wanted to explain why they're there, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, the, your question was about the Romans. How does, how does that, in essence, happen? How, how is it that we, we get to the, the Roman rivalry with the Parthians? Um, this is another subject that a lot of scholars have spilled a lot of ink on, as you can imagine. And there are really, the traditionalists uh, would argue that this is something that's sort of destined, that these are two empires building towards one another, and that there's a showdown in the works, right? That this is going to be a prize fight, and there's there's no way that this wasn't going to happen. Um, traditionalists also argue that Crassus, uh, who you introduced in the beginning of the podcast, that he's to blame, right? It's the it's the greed and the avariciousness and the glory-seeking of Crassus that leads to this rivalry with the Parthians. And really what this narrative is emphasizing is that it's all Roman agency. It's the Romans, the reason why any of this happens, and that the Parthians are you know victims of Roman imperial aggression and, and all that sort of stuff. The reality is much more interesting and, of course, more complex than that. But in general... My reaction to sort of the origins of the Roman and Parthian relationship and and um, eventual ri violent rivalry is it's all accidental. None of it's planned. It's completely um, by happenstance that the Romans and the Parthians don't really know anything about each other. And uh, they first meet in the 90s when uh, representatives of the Parthian king meet with Cornelius Sola in Cappadocia. And that meeting is reflective, in my opinion, of the fact that, yeah, they have no idea who each other are, and they're they're quite awkward in their interactions. Um, according to that tradition, Sola uh, meets with the Parthian representative and the local king, and he sits the king and the Parthian representative um, in a, a position of inferiority uh, at the table of negotiations. That's that's sort of the traditional Western view of these things. Um, and the idea being that Sola knows that the Parthians are just, you know, these degenerate Western, you know, peoples, and they have to be put in their place, even though we don't really know who they are, um, without really considering, well, what's going on with the Parthians? What's happening there? That the Parthians obviously have an imperial interest in this region as well, and their, their approach to negotiations are not the same as the Romans. And... Um, and what's very interesting about these kind of awkward interactions that we have over the first century that culminate in Crassus's you know, invasion of Mesopotamia is that none of it's planned and none of it has, there's no grand strategy to any of this. This is, this is all sort of immediate reactions for immediate goals. A lot of it is not connected in any sort of you know, uh, organized policy uh, and that the Parthians and the Romans are really kind of awkwardly feeling each other out from about the 90s to the 50s uh, BCE. So roughly, you know, a generation or two. And even with Crassus's invasion, I've argued in my research pretty extensively, it's not Crassus just being this avarice glory hound. Um, that's not the reason why he goes to Mesopotamia. Now, of course, he's interested in being a Roman, which is gaining a military command and gaining some glory in a, in a victory uh, against a, a foreign adversary. Um, but what's left out, I think, in the traditional literature 
uh, or the traditional scholarship because of the literature is that if you look at the actual context of that first war, the Parthians and the Romans are already at war before Crassus arrives in Syria. He is just picking up an ongoing conflict. It's not something that he has created himself. Before Crassus even gets the, the command in the east, what's happened is there's a Parthian civil war. And in this civil war between two brothers, one of the brothers, out of desperation, flees to Syria and starts talking with the local Syrian Roman governor. governor and he cuts a deal with a man named Gabinius. And Gabinius says, you know what? Yeah, I'll go ahead and go to Mesopotamia and I will help you fight your brother. That's what he says. And he crosses the Euphrates uh, on this campaign to invade uh, Mesopotamia on behalf of this brother against his other brother in the civil war. And he gets a message from Pompey, Pompey the Great. And Pompey, who's basically Gabinius's friend and mentor, says, actually, you shouldn't be doing this conflict. There's a bigger thing going on in Egypt. You should go to Egypt and figure out what's going on with the Ptolemaic dynasty. And Gabinius decides to follow the advice of his mentor, and he switches gears. He abandons his campaign in Mesopotamia, and he goes to Egypt instead. Now, that's the Roman story. What's happening with Parthia is the brother who had gained Gabinius' support now doesn't have Roman support. And so he decides to go back home and basically organize what resistance he can in Mesopotamia and fights his brother in this civil war. And ultimately, he loses. His brother, a man named Orodes II, wins the civil war. He defeats his brother and, and actually executes his brother to get rid of him as a, as a rival. Now, what this means is that Gabinius, in supporting this defeated brother, had declared war on Orodes II. This is an ongoing problem. Right? Orodes II knows that the Romans have entered this, what he thinks is an internal conflict right, between Parthians, and the Romans have stuck their, you know, their big nose into Parthian affairs. So as far as Orodes is concerned, the Romans are, are already at war with me. This has to be settled one way or the other through negotiation or conflict. And for the Romans, the same thing, that, okay, Gabinius started this conflict. We haven't had a solution to it. And into that environment, that's where Crassus is inserted. So he picks up this ongoing conflict, and he's the one that is supposed to be on behalf of the Romans, figuring out a final solution to this new Parthian problem that has that has emerged. So the reason why we have this, the reason why we have this this sort of image of Crassus as this avarice, you know, glory hound that's you know makes this terrible decision to attack the Parthians who who didn't ask for it, is because Crassus goes out and loses. <laughs> I mean, that's the answer, is the Greeks and the Romans don't like losing. And whoever loses, when, when you lose to a barbarian, right, as the Romans would see the Parthians, it's never the Romans' fault, right? It's, it's, we, the superior Romans, the civilized Romans, we don't lose to barbarians, right? So it's not, it's not a fault of the Romans, of their military. It's a fault of the general, right? So in essence, Crassus, because he goes out and loses and then gets himself killed and gets his son killed, Publius, um, he he doesn't have any real advocates for him back at Rome to defend the reasons for why he went on campaign. Um, his subordinate in this campaign, Cassius, who's going to eventually stab Julius Caesar, Cassius hates um, Crassus. And Cassius escapes the disaster of Cari, and Cassius goes home and starts writing 
anti-Crassus propaganda saying, I'm the one who told him this was a bad idea. I'm the one that mm-hmm. saved Syria after he went and got himself killed and got our army destroyed. And so this 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 long-standing tradition of Crassus being this this dope, this sort of greedy, you know, moron that goes off and 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 gets himself killed, that begins almost in the immediacy of the aftermath of the Battle of Cari, where the Romans try to at arm's length distance themselves from the fact that they lost to the Parthians, which they don't like to admit, and instead scapegoat Crassus for all the disasters that befall them in the in the in that generation and the following generation. Antony is sort of a continuation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so again, when, when we're looking at the origin of the the Roman and the Parthian conflict, I think that it's really important that we consider the Parthian perspective of these things as much as we possibly can to see that, yes, the Parthians aren't simply victims or a backdrop to Roman uh, actions and Roman intentions, that the Parthians are trying to do things themselves and are indeed doing things themselves. Uh, and that the Crassus wanted the war. There's no doubt about that. But I would argue so did the Parthians. Herodes is not backing down from that conflict. He's he's quite interested in in the prospects of fighting the Romans as well. Let me finish up asking you uh, one question, uh, which about sort of your, your method and how you how you did this. Um, you make it clear in your introduction that you wish to combine uh, traditional approaches with modern international relations uh, theory. Uh, what does that mean? Yes. So this is um, a relatively new approach that was pioneered by um, a very, a very um, brilliant scholar named Arthur Eckstein. And what it's trying to do is, especially in the ancient world where our knowledge of these events are finite, why wouldn't we try to use essentially modern frameworks that might help us look at our evidence in a different way? So it's simply, you know, instead of looking at Thucydides the same way that 10,000 other scholars have, let's see if we can look at it from a different direction using other modern disciplines. And in this particular discipline, it's a discipline coming out of political science, uh, international relations theory. And what Eckstein recognized is that in particular, there's a style of of international relations theory called neorealism, which really sort of emphasizes that um, states are in this continual position of anxiety over their security and their power and their resources. And so therefore, this anxiety leads to frictions and, and, and violence um, across interstate systems. And this is something that modern international relations theorists, they argue about constantly, uh, but they apply it to the modern world. And the modern world is not the ancient world. And what Eckstein realized is that the most extreme versions of this sort of neorealist understanding of international relations actually matches up quite well with the very kind of crude and violent nature of state interactions in antiquity. That there is no UN, there are no permanent ambassadors, that states constantly use what's known as compellence diplomacy, which is they don't talk to each other until basically it's time for war. Right. There's no there's no time to have cooler heads prevail. Um, and so using this framework, at least how, how Eckstein used it, he, he, he used it looking at the traditional approaches of kind of Roman imperialism versus other imperialism. And what he was arguing against is that traditionally scholars had said the Romans were successful because the Romans were simply meaner, more aggressive 
and bigger bullies than anybody else, um, that they were just more violent than anybody else. And he used this framework to look at the environment instead of just the case study of Rome. And what he demonstrated is that actually when you when you blow up the picture to a macro level and you look at Rome and all its contemporaries, all of the contemporaries are also mean, aggressive, violent, um, that the Romans aren't any more, any less violent than the Carthaginians or the Greeks or the Macedonians. And so I thought that this was really an intriguing idea, really kind of interesting methodological approach, this sort of framework that I could build around the Parthians. And I thought it was even more interesting for the Parthians because as little as we have of the Greeks and the Romans, we have even less of Parthian <laughs> society and Parthian history. And so I wanted to be able to take the very little that we have and to look at it from all perspectives possible. And this framework was a way to do so um, and, and really kind of make sure that I wasn't focusing too much on the micro and always had a perspective from the macro that, that, that the Parthians are developing in an environment, an international environment that has many other pieces, many other movers and shakers that I didn't want to get lost down the rabbit hole of just focusing on the Parthians and making the mistake of, of saying that the Parthians are sort of doing something unique uh, or that they've, they've revolution, revolutionized something without actually checking it against, well, are the Seleucids or the Bactrians or the Persians or whoever, are they also doing things similar to this? And so that was where that framework I thought was very useful and, and, and interesting. And I, I, I try to say in the book that, of course, this is not something that, that you can always make declarative definitive statements on. But if it helps us gain a new perspective, I, th I think it's certainly worth the, the effort to try to start that conversation. Well, my guest today has been Nicholas Overtum. He's author of Reign of Arrows, that's R-E-I-G-N of Arrows, The Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East. Nick, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.